Hi, this is Patrick Baird, co-host of Unknown Orbits Podcast. I'm here to tell you about my latest novel, The Nowhere Navy, a military science fiction novel set in the distant future. It's basically McHale's Navy in space. It's on Amazon.com. I hope you'll enjoy it. Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 49 of Unknown Orbits, Mimsy Were the Boroughgroves by Lewis Paget. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. This is a story that was actually written not by Lewis Paget, because there is no Lewis Paget. Lewis Paget was the pen name of the husband and wife team of Henry Kuttner and C.L. Moore. Both of them were highly accomplished science fiction and fantasy writers in their own right. But every now and then they would come up with an idea that they worked together on. And when they did that, they published it under the pseudonym of Lewis Paget. So I don't know how that worked. One person got the idea, the other one did most of the writing, or I have no idea. But It was indeed a uh, collaboration, and in this case, a collaboration between two very solid, good, and popular uh, science fiction writers. So the story of Mimsy, Where the Bora Grows, begins with a scientist in the future experimenting with sending objects back in time. Just out of convenience, he grabs a number of toys out of his child's toy box and uses them in his experiments to send back in time. So from his perspective, they all vanish and never reappear, and they're lost. So then we flash backwards to 1942, and a young boy is playing out in the woods, and he finds one of the boxes full of toys, opens it up, and sees all these strange objects inside. He begins playing with them, and then brings the box home and eventually shares some of them with his younger sister, who's a toddler, about four years old. And they both begin to experience altered consciousness playing with these toys. It begins conditioning their minds, their young, pliable minds, especially his younger sister. So they begin thinking in a non-Euclidean fashion, in a different way of thinking than your average person, as a result of solving these little puzzle boxes that they have to solve. But there's an infinite number of solutions, and so they continue to play with them. It makes me wonder when the push was to have educational toys for children. Yeah, I'm sure there have been educational toys all along. My parents were both teachers, so I had my share of educational toys. Fortunately, they didn't restrict my toys to just educational toys. That would have been a painful childhood. Um, Are you referring to my childhood? (laughs) I'm sorry to hear that. Well, I did have construction toys that were considered educational. Yeah, Yeah, like Erector sets for your younger listeners. That's a whole subsystem of these kits. They were like made out of cheap metal, and you got little motors and pulleys and levers, and you could build all kinds of machines out of it. You could build something like a car. These were actually functional toys. I mean, if you built a crane, it could lift up a decent amount of weight. My set had a transmission, 
So you could vary the speed or reverse it, which was right. which was fun. Right. So that was an example of a fun educational toy. I think there was a period in my life where I wanted an erector set. For whatever reason, I never did get one. But one of the things that happened in the late 1950s was when Sputnik was launched by the Soviets, that was quite a shock to the public. And it spurred the United States government into accelerating what we now call STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math programs for children in the public schools. The idea was that there was a, they actually came up with the term a missile gap. There were a lot of gaps. I mean, that was a term thrown about a lot. They increased funding for science and math and so forth in the schools so that kids would be able to grow up to be scientists and engineers and astronauts and so forth. And it was successful. A lot of kids did wind up going into the STEM programs as a result. If we have this type of educational toy now, what would it be like in the far, far future? And that's what the story goes into. Yeah, that's exactly what you would presume that these toys that this scientist, his children had, were educational toys, but from a future world that had the effect of accelerating your uh, math skills or your language skills or whatever whatever it uh, may be. And they make a big point, a little repetitively, I thought, on getting them to think in non... Um... Euclidean. Non-Euclidean, that's brought up in the story. So to get back to the story a little bit, they begin to evidence strange behaviors and the parents are a little concerned about what's happening. So they bring in this psychologist and he starts observing the children and he's the one that starts saying, well, they're displaying non-Euclidean thinking. It's not just accelerating their math skills or anything. It's actually changing the way they think. And he has this theory that at an early age, before your mind is completely formed, you're pliable. And that's where these kids are. And that's why his younger sister seems to have more of an impact playing with these toys than the boy who's, I guess, about nine years old, somewhere around there. And the the father, he tries working with the toys, but he can't get anywhere. Yeah, he doesn't get anywhere. So the, the psychiatrist says, our minds at a certain age become locked in place in our form of logic, and it's impossible for us to go back and change that. That's basically the crux of the story is this idea of these children are developing a different way of thinking and seeing. And long story short, they develop to the point where they can open up a pathway between time and dimensions and they disappear. Poof. They just walk through some kind of dimensional doorway and just disappear. And the father sees them disappearing, tries to follow, cannot. Right. It did remind me a lot of a story called Star Bright by Mark Clifton. That was a case where his kid is naturally a genius and starts exploring topology and other dimensions. And eventually the kid learns how to visualize these fourth dimensional objects and it causes the kid to be able to travel through time. And in that story, the father is able to follow along with the kid and it ends with him leaving a note saying, well, I'm going to try to do it now. And he has disappeared. Very similar story, it sounds like. So this was published in 1943 in Astounding Magazine. And the thing that I found interesting about it is it, it almost felt to me like it was being written by someone who had anxiety about children. Don't we all? Well, not all of us. Children are creepy. Which we will get into here in a little bit. 
So in what way do you mean anxiety? Well, any story where parents are watching their children become aliens or become possessed by a demon or are communicating with the dead, it's playing on this common fear among parents in particular, but even non-parental adults, that somehow children are themselves somewhat alien. And I can tell you, when you're dealing with very young children, they can do weird things every now and then that kind of creep you out or kind of make you go, where the hell did that come from? I don't believe that Kuttner and Moore ever had any children. I, I, I checked and I didn't see any reference to them ever having had children. So maybe this was their fear. They were expressing their fear of the possibility of having children that that if they did, they would turn out to be uh, interdimensional travelers that they would lose. And it would almost be like having them die, really. Well, as a worry, it's kind of right next door to children in peril, which is used in a lot of movies. Sure. But I think that's very distinct from the subgenre of stories in and outside of science fiction. And we're going to talk about that in a, a few minutes of the child that is somehow distanced from their parents. Are you saying more like, here's this thing we created and it's becoming something we don't understand? Yeah, or it's becoming something that we fear. Fear. There's a very good movie. Well, there's two movies. These are new movies, so it's a little bit outside our purview, but I think they illustrate this well. The first one is a movie called What About Kevin? That's a really good movie, a single mother who has a young child who from birth is strange and violent. I know that title. Is that a documentary? No, no. Ezra Miller is the teenage son. So this... Good casting, by the way. Oh yeah, he's very creepy and malevolent in that movie. He gradually becomes violent and his mother starts to see, and nobody else is seeing it, there's something wrong with this kid, something wrong with Kevin, and he winds up becoming a school shooter and killing a bunch of kids. It's kind of an examination how this mother is isolated in her fear about her child and her fears become true. The other one is the Babadook, a single mother who has a very strange, alarming child who is having these encounters with, he claims, something called the Babadook. And it's a great portrait of a single mother who's just overwhelmed. She's just overwhelmed and is having a very, very hard time trying to handle this difficult child, and she's on her own. So those are two really good examples of this concept of you have a child who's alien and malignant and or is prey to malignant forces. Not being a parent, this wasn't obvious to me, but I suppose you get that conflict between being afraid of this thing that you love at the same time. Right. There's also more complex feelings. Speaking as a parent, I can remember there were times when my children were very young where they might be sick or they're just having a bad day and they're having temper tantrums all day and you get frazzled you get frazzled and you get stressed and you start getting angry you get angry at your kids and then maybe you even lose your temper a little bit and you immediately feel guilt so it's this complex set of emotions that any parent who's under stress dealing with the difficult child may have getting back to the basic point here I think that for any readers of this story back in the 1940s and then even today, if you're a parent, you might find that idea appealing because it touches on some fears and feelings that you may have about your own children. My theory on this is I think that they didn't want children. This is their way (laughs) of kind of making a statement. It's like, yeah, this is why we don't want children, because they might learn an interdimensional travel technique and disappear. 
Yeah, the odds are low, but the consequences are high. Right. So Mimsy Were the Borogroves was actually adapted into a movie in 2007 called The Last Mimsy. They spelled Mimsy M-I-M-Z-Y. And you and I actually watched that movie together last night. Yes. And it wasn't very good. No, it was not what I would call a really engaging movie. It was a modestly budgeted movie with some decent actors. And the first third or first half of the movie is a relatively faithful adaptation of the story where the boy finds a box full of toys and he and his sister begin exploring them and they start doing bizarre and wonderful things and the little sister becomes more affected than the boy. And then it turns into E.T. Yeah. And it sucked from that point forward. The evil government guys swoop in. Oh, my God. The evil government guys. so badly done. Michael Clark Duncan plays the head of the evil government agency that comes in. Well, what I love about it. Kidnaps the family and takes them to a secret location and interrogates them. Because one of the toys created a power outage, which, of course, you immediately assume it was a terrorist that did a power outage. Yeah. Within minutes, you're like, oh, this must have been a terrorist attack. Yeah, I love the fact that the security forces show up for a power outage. And then at the point in the movie where you have things floating in the air, and I don't even remember, ships and aliens and mysterious things happening, the government guy says, well, okay, we're done here. Uh, Bye. Sorry to have bothered you. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. And it turns out instead of being an accident where the scientists sent it back in the past, the people in the future are dying and they need DNA from modern people. So the tears of the little girl dropping onto her stuffed rabbit provide the DNA that gets sucked back into the future and saves humanity. May I quote myself the first time I saw that? Sure. Oh, Jesus Christ. (laughs) So we are not recommending The Last Mimsy unless you're really, really bored. The Twonky would be a better choice. We'll have a link to The Twonky in our show notes. That's probably a much more engaging movie than this very mediocre E.T. ripoff. And starring Hans Conried. What Twonky was, not not the last minute. Right, right. Yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. Good old Hans Conried. So it reminded me of at least one other story we've talked about, and you had a couple others to add to the list. Yeah. The one that it brought up for me was C.M. Kornblus' The Little Black Bag, which we did in episode seven, where in the future, a doctor accidentally sends a medical bag back in time, and it's discovered by a bum who happens to be a former doctor, if I believe. He's like a disgraced alcoholic doctor. He finds the little black bag, recognizes it for what it is, and because it has all these highly advanced instruments in it, uses it for the betterment of mankind, but then it has an unhappy ending and nobody lives happily ever after. I recommend you listen to episode seven if you're more interested in that. But it's an idea of an object sent back from the future. Someone finds it randomly and it has consequences. So I think that matches this story quite well. I'm pretty sure that Little Black Bag was written after 1943. Yes, definitely. So so it's possible it might have been influenced by this story. Another one that you listed was Not to Be Opened by Peter Granger. Yes, Not to Be Opened isn't exactly about an object from the future. It's very, very close. What it is, is a person comes from the future and starts manufacturing highly advanced objects that he has in the future, but he's manufacturing them in, like, 1950s America. It would have the same effect. Yes. Really. It's just a different way of getting around to it. And it has a lovely gimmick. 
the main character knows how things are put together. There's a longish backstory explaining this, but he knows how things go together, and he starts to discover items that have parts in them that aren't really needed, that are machined to tolerances much greater than needed. They don't really work well in the device they're in, and it turns out that they're hidden parts. So he's manufacturing parts and putting them in other ordinary objects. Yes, and then the protagonist discovers the code behind these things, and it's very simple. It's like toy starting with the letter P, and he buys a bunch, he finds a bunch of parts, assembles the oddball parts, and suddenly he has a ray gun. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the story is him tracking down who's doing all of this. It sounds like an interesting story. It's a nice story. I really liked it. And then you had another one, Hawk Among the Sparrows? Yeah, that's 1968, so it's a little bit past. We'll stretch it a little for this one. It's another wonderful idea story where a guy in 1968 is in a jet fighter over Vietnam or something, and he finds himself transported in the skies over France in 1918, and he's got a jet fighter. This sounds a little familiar. It's the final countdown. Oh, yes. <laughs> I do like that movie. I can quite see a lot. why you like this story. Yeah. Now. So he's transported to 1918. And he lands. And one of the reasons the story is great is they go through all the unexpected problems of fueling the thing. He's in a dogfight. Rearming. Yes, he's in a dogfight and he fires one of his missiles and it does nothing because there's not enough metal in the other plane. Oh, these old canvas and balsa wood planes, yeah. Exactly. It's a, did we say the author? McLaughlin. Dean McLaughlin. I would highly recommend it. It was in Analog in 1968. The other one that I thought of, which is another one that we covered previously, was Business as Usual During Alterations by Ralph Williams. That was episode 24. And that's the one where, as a test, was it people in the future or aliens? They were aliens, but it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, they send these duplicating boxes back to Earth in the 1950s, and they have like a tray that you put an object in the tray, and it will make an exact duplicate of it. The story is told from the point of view of a department store manager. Their business is threatened by these devices showing up, but he figures out very clever ways to use these devices to reap new profits. And it's a very interesting problem-solving story. One of the better stories, I think, that we've done in the last year. And I think we pointed out at the time that this is being mirrored in the world of 3D printing. Yeah, it's kind of like an advanced 3D printer. So that's some similar stories that we were reminded of reading this. One of the things I loved about this story is the amount of drinking in this story. Oh, yeah. It's like every time something happens, the parents grab a cocktail. <laughs> yes. And it's yes. a different cocktail every time. So like the first time they have martinis and they have Manhattans and they have some gimlets and they must have had a hell of a home bar. But that's the good old days of the 1940s where whatever situation came along, you had to stop and take time to have a cocktail. Yeah. Every day had cocktail hour. Right. Right before dinner. Oh, the good old days. So this is a Science Fiction Hall of Fame story. So it is a highly loved and acclaimed story. The two writers, C.L. Moore and Henry Kuttner, were very popular writers in their day. Henry Kuttner started writing in the early 1930s, I believe. Might even have been the late 20s. So like a pulp writer. He was one of the most popular writers in Weird Tales magazine. He wrote a lot of horror, a lot of fantasy. He was absolutely one of their most popular writers. And then C.L. Moore 
She's most famous for the story Chamblot. Chamblot is one of her Northwest Smith adventures. There are these uh, space opera type adventures featuring a very old school, rough and tough space adventure named Northwest Smith. The story Chamblot, he falls in love with an alien woman who is sort of an energy vampire. It's, it's a highly acclaimed story, one of the more popular ones of the time. And then the Twonky. Yes. She co-wrote with Kuttner, so that was another Lewis Paget story. Tell us about the Twonky. When I first read it in context in the magazine, I think it stood out as being different and weird, which I think a lot of these stories that we remember fondly in our Science Fiction Hall of Fame are really just going in a direction that's new for people, and, and the Twonky was one of those. Yeah, Mimsy were the Borogroves would fit that. Yeah. So what's the Twonky about? A guy is expecting to have a television delivered to his house, and what shows up looks like a television, but it's not. It's a Twonky, which is a mobile sentient device that looks after you. It has your best interests in mind, as well as being a helpful servant. Mm -hmm. So I believe it starts out when he just pulls out a cigarette and the antenna on the television set whips forward and lights the cigarette for him. Oh, that's cool. And then the Twonky goes on to do all sorts of things for him. But in typical wacky fashion, it starts misinterpreting things and causing more and more trouble until the guy's trying to get rid of it. And oh no, you can't get rid of it because it has your best interests in mind. I believe it was uh, produced as a movie in the 1950s, which I have never seen. It is on the Internet Archive. We'll include a link when we post this podcast. So yeah, both of them, terrific writers. This is a good example of their collaboration together. So we sort of promised this in the previous episode to talk a little bit more about the trope of creepy children. We came up with a list of a number of stories, mostly stories that appeared in the magazines during the Golden Age. First one that I have is Little Girl Lost which was written by Richard Matheson and was adapted into a Twilight Zone episode. You remember that one. It was a pretty good episode. I think it's one that people don't remember as well as the more famous ones. Well, I think some people would remember it because it has a very familiar element. It's a little girl that gets sucked into an interdimensional void, which is very, 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 very similar to Poltergeist. Oh! The little girl gets sucked into the dimension of the dead inside the TV. Basically, I, we might be accusing Steven Spielberg and company of having stolen from Richard Matheson to make the movie Poltergeist. Steven Spielberg's habit is to have a child in trouble in every single movie he well, makes. yes and no, but you're right now that I think about it. It is a pretty common Spielberg trope. So that's a classic. The one that prompted us to follow up on A Promise was we talked about John Wyndham in a previous episode, episode 17, when we talked about the Day of the Triffids. He wrote a book called The Midwich Cuckoos, which was adapted into a movie called The Village of the Dam. This is the movie with the little blonde-haired children that have the eyes that glow, and they're able to manipulate people to kill themselves or you know, drive into a wall. And May I ask an off-topic question I've been wondering sure. about for years? Is Children of the Corn the same kind of story? I've never seen it. I've never seen it either, weirdly enough, even though it's a hugely popular movie. That's about a cult... That's more like the Star Trek episode Miri, where ah. there's the planet of the children and all the adults are dead. The Grups. The Grups, yeah. yeah. 
the Children of the Corn is there's a this town out in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska somewhere, and it's been taken over by a cult of children. One of the children is the cult leader, and if a stranger comes into town, they take them prisoner and they sacrifice them to the corn god or whatever. That's my understanding. I've never seen it. There's a movie I have to introduce you to if I can find it again. Similar plot. It's a very low-budget movie, and all the children are getting together and like getting powers and being like a cult. The last 10 minutes of the movie are all the adults get together and murder every last child. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Not that I'm in favor of murdering children, but evil murderous children, yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry, Village of the Damned. Yeah, a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with at least that movie. Very memorable. A sequel too, wasn't there? Well, we talked about that in episode 17, so I'm not going to go into any detail. I would just recommend, if you're more interested in, check out episode 17 where we talk about the movies that were spawned by the movie Village of the Damned. Speaking of murderous children, my next story on the list I think I also had talked about briefly in a previous show, is one of my favorite stories from childhood, The Velt by Ray Bradbury. That's the one where the children have sort of like a holographic playroom where they can transport themselves to all kinds of different locales. Their favorite place to go is is this African locale, like the Velt, you know, that's full of uh, giraffes and uh, elephants and lions, and the lions turn out to be fairly significant. And their parents become concerned that they're spending too much time with this, so they turn the machine off. And that turns out very badly for the parents because the kids turn the machine back off, and it's a very bad ending for the parents. I'm not going to spoil the ending, but I love that story. It's in the Illustrated Man collection of his, which I would highly recommend. That's a great—well, all of his collections are great, but that was a particular favorite of mine when I was a kid. Then there's It's a Good Life by Jerome Bixby, which everyone should be familiar with the Twilight Zone episode. And the whole point of that was if you had a child that had all these powers and had not had time to be socialized, what would they be like? And it turns out to be a little psychopathic tyrant. Again, you know, this is tapping into that fear of parents that your child is somehow monstrous. I don't think I've ever read the original story, but certainly I've seen the Twilight Zone episode. It's very similar. And all of the adults that survive that aren't put into the cornfield by Billy Moomy, who is the actor who played the tyrannical little child, are completely controlled by this kid because everything they do, they have to watch what they say, even have to watch what they think because he can read minds. There's that great character actor that gets turned into a, what do they call him, a clown out of the box? Jack in a box. Jack in a box. Yeah. So yeah, there's that fear as a parent that your life is being controlled by your children, that you can't do anything. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You you're stuck in the house, and, and they are, because he makes all the rest of the world disappear. So they're trapped in what's left of the town. It's absolutely a perfect encapsulation of that parental fear that you're being controlled by your children. One thing that was covered in the short story that wasn't in the television show is they explain when the world disappeared was when the kid was first born and gets slapped by the doctor that's when he made everything else disappear yes you know what i think i did read the story now that you mention it that detail i remember so yes and did you know the 1980s revival of twilight zone the movie no no the series the series they did a sequel to that episode oh they did i i missed that with billy moomy with billy moomy oh i'll have to look that up another one that i have that we've talked about is Born of Man and Woman 
by Richard Matheson, another Richard Matheson story, episode 28. That's the one that's told from the point of view of a monstrous child who lives in the basement and the parents are trying to keep him from escaping out into the wider world. And not to give too much away, but it's a pretty effective, nasty little story. I think one of the greatest strengths of that story is he doesn't really explain a lot. He hints yeah. at the kid's nature yeah. and your imagination. Yeah. Initially, you think it's just a child, but then gradually he reveals, no, it's much worse than a child. It is a child, but it's a monstrous child. I always remember the phrase, I dripped green. Yeah. Check that one. That's episode 28. And check out the story. It's really one of his best. The only other one I could think of in the science fiction realm was from Dune by Frank Herbert. Paul Atreides' younger sister, Aaliyah, if you've read the book, and actually if you've seen the David Lynch movie, you'd remember it as well. So his mother is pregnant when she arrives on the Dune planet, and because of the amount of spice that she ingests just from being there on the planet, that causes her child while in the womb to become super intelligent and have super psychic powers. So this child is born and it's like three years old and it's like a little miniature adult and she's extremely creepy. She terrifies the Bene Gesserit priestesses because she is like reading their minds and using her psychic powers. That's a very creepy little kid. David Lynch did a pretty good job. That's one of the few things in that original Dune movie that were pretty good, portraying this kid as a creepy little adult. So that's the only ones I could think of. Are there any other creepy child stories from science fiction or even fantasy that you can recall? I think that covers it. All right, that's it for episode 49. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.